Welcome to Unleashing Your Great Work, a podcast about doing the work that matters the most to you. I'm your host, Dr. Amanda Kroll, a cognitive psychologist, coach, and the creator of the Aligned Time Journal. Every week, we're here asking the big questions. What does it take to create something of your own? How do we overcome the procrastination, failure, and rejection that comes prepackaged with great work? And while we're at it, what is your great work? How would you know? How can you find out? We'll explore all of this and more. So get in here and let's unleash your great work. It's often said that humans are pack animals, like wolves. We travel together, support each other, and find success together. It's hard to look at our vast cities, our scientific achievements, our blockbuster movies, all of which are the result of massive collaboration and try to argue this fundamental point. And yet, I haven't always felt like part of the pack. I sometimes think there are two kinds of people in the world. Pack wolves, who are great at creating things in community. And lone wolves, who are great at generating outcomes from their own internal motivations and drive. Obviously, the best of us are both, but even those of us who have figured out how to do both, one is still our natural default mode. I am naturally a lone wolf. When I was in college, I would have been delighted to do every group project by myself on my own. Even now, I work best when the boundaries between my work and your work are clear. I'm naturally, in a default programmed kind of way, a lone wolf when it comes to getting my work done. My friend and long ago college roommate Monica is a pack wolf by nature and experience. She loves to ask questions and get feedback. She improves processes. She wants to hash things out. Her goal is to move things forward in a way where everyone is happy. When you want a group to function properly, you want Monica on that team. In fact, my favorite of those dreaded group projects in college were the ones where Monica was also on them because very instinctively, she knows how to get the most out of everyone, including me. Being a pack wolf is not better or worse than being a lone wolf, just so you know. Instead, each of them have strengths and challenges. Being a lone wolf means that you have to hone your voice, be decisive, figure a lot of things out, and learn how to move things forward on momentum you are generating on your own. And from years of watching Monica and others like her, I've noticed that pack wolves are somehow deeply connected to everyone. If they need help, they have 10 people to turn to. When Monica needed someone to watch her kids for a few weeks when her husband was in the hospital, she had a rotation of five women, all of whom were 100% invested in doing it all for free. Pack wolves are involved in a lot of projects, and they're often considered quite central to the success of those projects. I find that they get promoted, they get poached, and they're generally just really great managers. Both are good, is my point. It's possible to be successful and well-liked and highly paid with both of these default ways of being. And yet, as I've grown older, and especially as I've been considering the essential nature of great work, I have become convinced that neither one of these skill sets is enough on their own. We need to take the time and intentionally develop that other set of skills. For me, as a lone wolf, that means that I've spent my adulthood developing the skills of collaboration, giving and receiving mentoring, connecting with an audience, and developing solid support relationships. 
I remember the day that it hit me how much harder I was making things by doing everything myself and making all roads lead to me. I was in a postdoctoral fellowship, which is the training that comes after you do a PhD. It's meant to fill in the gaps. Your PhD teaches you how to be a researcher, for example, but your postdoc teaches you how to run a research lab. During my PhD, I had an ambitious three-year data collection that resulted in some longitudinal data that was analyzed with a coding scheme. It was a massive project, and I absolutely had help, but that help was really cordoned off with very obvious boundaries. I prepared dialogues, and then I gave them to the people whose only job it was to code them. Then I did all the comparing, inputting, cleaning, and analysis. The team of other PhD students were amazing, by the way. It wasn't that they couldn't have been much more collaborative, but rather, that just wasn't my style. If something had to be submitted to the IRB, I did it. If something needed to be scheduled and organized, I did it. If something had to be ushered through a process at the college or the school, I did it. I was the single point of failure on that project, or at least that's how I saw it. It was very tiring, but there was also a kind of comfort in knowing that I had my hand in everything that was happening. And then, during my postdoctoral fellowship, I joined a massive team. We were scattered across two universities, Pittsburgh, where I was, and the University of California, Berkeley, in the Bay Area. We had also some outside evaluators from research organizations that were on the same team. There were three or four principal investigators and at least 25 research staff. The days of me being in control were over. At first, I think I was a little uncomfortable. How would I know for sure that the IRB would get done? How would I know that the data was being processed fast enough? I couldn't know that. And then I realized I don't have to be a part of the IRB situation at all or the data cleaning or negotiations with the schools. And you know what? I don't even have to make the agendas for these many, many, many meetings that we had. It seems that pack wolves love meetings. Listen, I was blown away by the freedom of this. These expert, extremely professional, capable, knowledgeable people would just do these things instead. It was relief and freedom and almost a certain kind of disbelief. Would it really get done? But I watched and it did. And I suddenly realized what a ceiling I had put on the projects I could do by being only a lone wolf. It was brilliant. And it put me in the land of collaboration. At first, it was nothing but relief and amazement. But because I was really a lone wolf without any skills, it meant that I was really ill-prepared for the disagreements and slowdowns and negotiations that came along. I learned that not only was it amazing to collaborate with people who would do some of the work, but it was quite complicated as well. How do we have difficult conversations? How do we learn from each other when everyone thinks they're an expert? And how do we express our individual opinion persuasively while still leaving the door open to differences of opinion? How do we make sure that the work we're doing actually benefits schools? And most importantly, how do we actually make decisions so these projects can move forward? This was a whole new set of skills. These are the skills of the pack wolf. Over the course of the last decade or so, since I left that team and joined others and have done great work together with all of them, I have learned some things. Have I figured it all out? No. I am still a lone wolf by nature. I'm decisive and I can't really relax until I see the whole picture. Nonetheless, I can now clearly see the limits of being only a lone wolf. The truth is, great work is done in community. 
big projects that change the world, change perspectives, change the face of an industry, or solve a wicked problem, those can't be done on our own. We need other people. To my mind, there are four kinds of people we need to do great work. Broadly, I would call them mentors, collaborators, audience, and support. First up, we need people willing to teach us things. We need mentors. This is true whether we're in college and just getting started in our careers or if we're moving into a new space, new fields, new sectors, new skill sets, whatever it is. This is especially true if we're doing a big shift, moving into an entirely new industry or an entirely new skill set. When this happens, we must have mentors. I have had many, many mentors in my day. In PhD programs, mentorship is the primary instructional model. I've noticed two flavors of mentors, those who want disciples and those who want apprentices. Discipleship is where every project is fundamentally your mentor's project. Your job is to do what they tell you to do exactly as they themselves would have done it. And you should not expect much credit for your work because, really, it's their work. Experts who desire discipleship from their collaborators are often really big names in their fields and very successful. And my guess is that they are just lone wolves without the skills to really collaborate. I believe that most of them want what's best for their collaborators, but they just don't know how to let go of any control. I found a lot of compassion for the mentors I've had like this, because when you're at the top of your game and trying to stay there, it's easy to feel like every mistake is a threat and everyone on your team needs to get and stay in line. It's got to be hard to feel that much pressure. And I can say from experience, it's hard to be their mentee as well. But listen, we go along because if this amazing person is willing to teach us what they know, it will be so worth it later. And it has been. I've learned from some of the best and their perspectives changed me forever. If your mentor requires discipleship and you aren't happy with that, just remember to keep your eye on your next step. Trying to change someone who is used to disciples by trying to be that one special disciple who gets elevated to collaborator status, it's nearly impossible. Instead, just know and accept and be fine with the fact that this is a limited time gig. And then just focus on learning as much as you can so that you can take that opportunity on another team when it arises. Unleashing Your Great Work is sponsored by the Aligned Time Journal. As you think about great work, you might think, okay, but how? How do I figure out what my great work is? How do I make progress on it? How do I overcome procrastination, burnout, and perfectionism? What I like to call the three horsemen of the goalpocalypse. My answer to that question is use the Aligned Time Journal. It's a whole person time management system that will keep you moving forward on your great work without ever feeling overwhelmed. Click the link in the show notes to check it out. Give it a try and get busy unleashing your great work out into the world. Now, not all mentors require disciples. In fact, most of the mentors that I've had really wanted apprentices. They wanted their ideas spread far and wide, and they wanted you to take what they could teach you and go be great. These people are either naturally pack wolves or lone wolves who have done the work to figure out how to work well with others. These are the best mentors because they care about what it takes for you to learn the basics, master those intermediate skills, and then innovate on your own. They will create these chances for you and make sure you receive at least some credit. My graduate advisor at Columbia, Deanna Kuhn, and my postdoctoral advisor at Pitt, Chris Shun, were great at this. Both of them are extremely well-respected in their fields, and yet 
they were really mostly concerned that their students become competent, innovative, successful researchers. I learned a lot about collaboration by looking back at how they set clear visions for their teams and then created opportunities for their students to figure out how to succeed. Excellence was required in both cases, but I never felt micromanaged or controlled, unlike how I felt with those mentors who preferred disciples. Either way, whether you are lucky enough to get an apprenticeship or lucky enough to be taken under the wing of a giant and spend some time as their disciple, mentors are critical. Trying to get by without them is a great way to slow walk your career and your great work. Now, once you are trained up enough to join the ranks of a straight collaborator, this is where things get fun. There is nothing like a team of experts coming together to create something amazing. That could be a meeting or a book or a Broadway show, or it can just be you and your partner coming together to raise a family. The magic of collaboration is in the combinatorial effect. As a lone wolf, I understood collaboration for a really long time as simply a division of labor. The team or the leader decides on an outcome and we each do our part. Division of labor, where individual contributions kind of come together into a final project, is a powerful way to get things done. But it is nothing compared to the magic that comes when a group of experts come together and create something new. The ideas that spark, the innovations that flow, and the clarification of your own ideas is just a natural part of that process. That's the real magic of collaboration. A good friend of mine, she was my first guest on this podcast, actually, Dr. Alyssa Adams. She and I have been collaborating for years. I was her coach. She was my podcast coach. And right when the pandemic began, she and I collaborated on a program called Support Lab. Support Lab was an amazing experience. It was a highly charged, stressful, and uncertain time. And Alyssa and I just wanted to create a space where coaches and therapists could get together and support each other. She and I both have experience in practice building, marketing, sales, and business building more broadly. Alyssa has great strengths in being organized and systematized, and my strengths are in program design and facilitation. When we began working on Support Lab, it felt like a standard collaboration. I'll do this, and you do that, and we'll do the thing we agreed to do. But as we collaborated on the bits and the pieces of Support Lab, I noticed something right away. While I came with a picture in my mind... What we ended up with was better, sometimes in ways I never would have expected. My energy in facilitation is very high energy, very go team, making progress. Everyone feels really pumped up. You know, it's a great feeling. Alyssa's energy when facilitating a group is very stable, very comforting, very caring. And I noticed when I was co-facilitating with Alyssa that my own style stabilized a little bit and became more authentic. It's almost like her stable energy helped me to connect with people more deeply. And I think co-facilitating with me brought Alyssa's energy up. And so when we were both there, it's not just that they got some of Alyssa's stable energy and some of my high energy, but they got this co-facilitated space that was the best of both worlds. You know, it's kind of hard to describe the magic of collaboration, but the crux of it seems to be this. What you get from a solid, trusting, respectful collaboration is just way better than what you get on your own. And it's not just because there are more people to do the work and there's this opportunity to delegate, but because something entirely new happens, entirely new doors open, entirely new skills develop, and new ways of behaving and being just emerge naturally. Now, this insight that the best of collaboration comes from co-creating and being open to new ideas 
is complicating because it definitely opens the door to disagreements and slowdowns and those moments when you aren't entirely sure what to do. It's easier to just divide up the work and accomplish what we had agreed to do. But you know, do this for too long and frankly, it gets boring. But if you can figure out the skills of collaboration, those complicating factors of strong personalities and differences of opinion are worth it in the end because the work is so much better. And maybe more importantly, our experience of the work is so much deeper. I think the hard truth is that our single individual perspective isn't likely to be enough to really blow the lid off a wicked problem or revolutionize a field. Even Steve Jobs, who by all accounts was an innovative genius of epic proportions, had Steve Wozniak actually coding the software and the hardware on the back end. I've come to believe, even though it's hard for my poor lone wolf, that if we're looking to make a really big contribution, we need other experts to elevate our work. But that's not all we need. For the work we're doing to actually impact a problem or make a difference or change lives, we need to understand our audience too. Whether that's a constituency or a marketplace, a team or family, great ideas, beautifully executed, don't make a damn bit of difference if the people it's designed for don't want it. And we've all seen a terrible idea take off like wildfire just because it scratched an itch that nobody else had noticed. Great work is done in service which means that you need to understand those people you're serving. Not taking the time to understand them, listen to them, and get into the details of their problem as they see it is actually a pretty intense form of self-sabotage. I learned this the hard way in educational policy. Before I worked in consulting, where I was actually helping teachers implement DOE policy, I saw a lot of merit in a lot of policies and programs that people were trying to sell to schools. But that changed when I started walking side by side with teachers because I learned something critically important. The truth is teachers are fundamentally overwhelmed. Therefore, every new policy or program is up against a teacher's capacity, period. I noticed that it was the programs that provided consulting and support that were able to actually get teachers to use their products. Those who didn't simply sat on the shelf and they were never reordered. If you know your audience, you can actually help them. If you don't, you will simply become part of the noise. Finally, my changemaker friends, we need support. It's all well and good to have mentors teaching you the ropes, collaborators bringing you into cool projects, and an audience who wants your solutions. But none of that matters if you are dead on your feet, grinding away long past your bedtime, and so driven that you are missing your children grow up. I say this from experience. The people who bring you the sandwich make you stop working at six, invite you to a happy hour and force you to play Yahtzee on a Saturday afternoon might be the people most responsible for the success of your great work. Without these people, your ideas will be boring and you won't be any fun to collaborate with because you're running on empty. So if you actually want to do great work, you need to make sure that you're paying attention to and developing the relationships of the people who love you. Great work by its nature depends on other people. And this is why one of the essential pillars of great work is that it is done in community. So if you're feeling like your great work could be deeper or you're looking for a more vibrant experience of your great work, I would suggest that you reach out to others. Who do you need to learn from? Who would it be incredibly fun to collaborate with? And what family members or friends do you need to reconnect with so you have the support that you need? 
Reach out to these people and your great work will thank you. Thank you for joining me today on the Unleashing Your Great Work podcast. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. And hey, don't forget to check out the Align Time Journal. You need support to get started. Stay at it and unleash your great work out into the world. See you next time.